bite marks on the body of the victim, fibers matching the murdered girl's clothing, DNA extracted from a rock used to crush the victim's skull. Forensic science is at the heart of how we solve criminal cases today. As we can see right now with the exhuming of mass graves and the careful collection of evidence in Ukraine, forensic science can also be used to shed light on crimes committed by political regimes. In the case of Spain, forensic science has been instrumental in shattering the silence about the crimes of the Civil War and the Franco era. To learn more about the development of the international forensic science movement and how it has transformed the memory landscape in Spain, I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Nicole Iturriaga from the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society at the University of California, Irvine, to discuss her recent book, Exhuming Violent Histories, Forensics, Memory, and Rewriting Spain's Past. Nicole, thank you for joining this episode of Realms of Memory. Thank you so much for having me. One of the things that struck me uh, reading your book is just how traumatic this uh, this past is. I mean, this past that the Spanish, it sounds like are really only beginning to try to come to terms with. So I was hoping you could begin by explaining how can we begin to understand the extent of the violence and, and what was behind it? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so Spain, uh, you know, in that point in the early 30s, um, had, had mostly been, you know, a sort of feudalism as a system, a lot of power in a small group of people, um, a lot of wealth as well, and uh, they they had able they were able to um, remove the monarchy and start what they called the Second Republic, which was like a, a big change in that time period. So you have the early '30s, you have the rise of, of global fascism pretty much everywhere else on the European continent, and then you have this uh, push for democracy, self-rule in Spain. Um, and that, that brought in a lot of big changes, um, a lot of agrarian reform, wealth redistribution efforts, um, which left a lot of people um, who were wealthier and, and supportive of traditional power structures, such as the Catholic Church, um, feeling very unhappy. Um, there's also a long history of military coups um, or very intense military, militarized presence in um, the Spanish history at that point. And that was one of the reasons why uh, General Francisco Franco was was placed in oh, far away um, from the capital, from the country even. And he was placed in sort of colonized um, Spanish Morocco um, to prevent a potential coup. The problem is, is that, that that distance is also what led people like Franco the, the chance to plan from far away without necessarily being noticed. Um, the violence was... Like Sokovadonga and all of that is a reference to the retaking of Spain from the Moors. Um, the idea similarly was that there was a an invading, uh, quote unquote, sort of, if you will, savage force that had taken over Spain and needed to be removed. And, and in this case, it was um, Marxism or you know leftist progressive ideas that needed to be crushed and uh, Catholic conservative Spain restored. And so what we see with the coup, which we just passed the, the anniversary of, which was July 18th, um, and I'm, I'm not, it's too early for me to be doing math, but it's, you know, 80 something years. Um, and so they, they launched in from the South. Um, but what happened was also that, um, different factions of the military fractured 
and and the the level of violence according to various historians um who focus specifically on the Spanish War because this is a, a massive literature. So if you do want to get further into it, you know, Paul Preston's probably a great place to start. Um, but it was extremely violent and vicious. Um, I believe the way it's discussed is that the, the this type of violence had only ever been saved for colonial conquests. So this was extremely violent. I think the hopes were, at least from the military perspective, was if it's extremely intense, people will capitulate quicker. There won't be a resistance if we crush them. Um, and this also included very intense gender violence, sexual violence uh, against women. Uh, women of what was seen like of the left were particularly targeted as seeing as they were seen as both traitors to Spain and to their sex. Um, and so there was a lot, a lot of violence there. Um, and it was extremely brutal, um, even in places where they didn't face resistance, like up in Galicia that never fell immediately. We're very sympathetic. There was extreme repression there, a lot of disappearances, a lot of torture, a lot of rape. Um, so yeah, that it was very, very intense violence that just escalated and continued with the war. And again, what struck me is because when you when you you know read about or teach about the the history of of, of empire, normally it's well, you have the reconquest. That's the stepping off point. And, and that kind of explains the violence that they're, they're picking up where they left off. But in this case, it's, it's turned towards the metropole, right? It's that history that's, that's turned back on its own people. At least if there's a ferocity of violence and an attitude towards the, towards the, the enemy side, it seems like, uh, uh, it's, it's focused on the enemy within. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think they felt very betrayed by their fellow Spaniards and they wanted, and, and I think in some cases, you know, some authors have argued that the, the amount of violence that happened, especially in the southern part of Spain, was very was racialized. Um, um, the, the people who live there tend to be, look a little darker. Um, and so there's a, a racialized element of they're not even Spaniards, they're just the remnants of the, the, the Moors who took over Spain however many hundred years before. Um, and some have even called that a genocide because it would, the, the violence in the southern part of Spain was extreme. And my sense, too, is that you, on the one hand, you have maybe a historically driven type of violence and, and perception of, of, of the other side. And then you have something that's scientific and that's, that's pseudoscientific and that's very modern. And uh, you mentioned this, this particular psychiatrist that had an influence on, on Franco and that that's tied into maybe the, the, the targeting and treatment of women and, and their, and their children. Could you, could you elaborate on, on that particular person? Yeah, absolutely. So he was trained in Germany. Uh, and then this is also historically speaking, um, eugenics was, was a, a, was a big science of the time. Um, and it came out of the United States and I went to, to German, uh, schools and and this particular person again I'm so sorry I'm blanking on his name but uh, he you know trained Antonio in Viejo yes. and I yes. think Antonio Viejo and Nehera I'm going to mispronounce yeah. it yeah so he he had gotten his training in sort of like eugenics typed psychology um, at, at this time they're also trying to, to figure out if there's a a biological component to political ideology um, so the idea and th- in this you will see again. <laughs> pop up in places like Argentina in the 70s and 80s of the idea that Marxism is uh, being given to children through family systems. 
um, with the like, is it biological? Is it nurture, you know, nature versus nurture? But either way, the, the best course of action is to remove small nonverbal children uh, from their parents of origin, like their biological parents and give them to um, good Catholic conservative families who will stomp out any kind of leftism. Um, it is also how you get a really great way of dehumanizing people. Um, so if you see them as a cancer, the only way to you know heal the body, if you will, is to cut it out. And you can justify a lot. Um, so at the end of the war, Franco was using, or his uh, regime was using this sort of um, psychological perspective that women were particularly susceptible to, to communism, Marxism, leftist thought, and that they were really dangerous and had to be super controlled. And women who were uh, mothers and leftists, you know, their children should be removed or put in homes or, um, you know, sterilized, things like that. This led to a bit of a baby stealing campaign amongst uh, nuns at that time. So at that, this is also, we're talking almost a hundred years ago, most women were giving birth in birthing clinics. So the nuns had all, there wasn't, people weren't giving birth in hospitals is what I'm trying to say. So nuns were really involved in people giving birth. And at that time they were also putting women under during the birthing process. So they're giving them ether or whatnot. So they're not present. And so they would come in, give birth, and then be told that the baby had died during the birthing process and that the Catholic church would cover the cost of the funeral and this and that. And then it, it wasn't really until the, like 2014 that someone confessed on their deathbed that they had bought their children from a nun. And this un was uncovered a massive baby trafficking campaign that started ideologically with the regime and then sort of evolved into just money-making for the nuns. And it continued way past the dictatorship, like into the 80s. So they think it's about 300,000 children were stolen this way. So when you think about, you know, who is the enemy, I mean, it is just cast in a very broad, a broad way. It's not just the enemy combatant. It's the extended family. Oh, absolutely. And, and the thing about the regime is they punished the Republicans and their families forever. They were second class citizens. They weren't allowed to have certain kind of jobs. A lot of, you know, those, they had their property seized, their businesses seized. They weren't allowed to leave without permission. Um, you know, they weren't allowed, the children weren't allowed vaccinations, you know, it was just constant punishment for almost 40 years. So if you're looking at the, just the sheer numbers, uh, uh, can you give a sense of the scale, the scope of, of people who are affected? Oh, it was millions. I mean, uh, millions of people voted for the second Republic. I mean, and that was how they, if you were in a union, you could be executed. So... <laughs> Uh, I mean, it was as simple as that. Things that had been very much legal before were, it was sort of ex post facto law. You're being held accountable for things that weren't illegal at the time that you were engaging them. Um, so this, this was millions of people who were terrified. And, and a lot of people left Spain, right? I mean, it was a huge Spanish Civil War refugee population that left. Um, and then those who couldn't leave that were stuck behind if they were on the losing side we're just in a really tough situation for a really, really long time. And I'm talking millions of people. So, so the conflict comes to an end in 19, 1939. And how does the regime continue to silence and, and stigmatize the other side? Um, well, they start with just executing thousands of people, um, you know, prisoners of war, 
people who had just fought on the other side. Um, you know, uh, in my book, I discuss um, uh, one gentleman who was just the president of a union. Like, like I said, any anything could still get you killed, and they were killing thousands of people in 1939. Um, you know. Franco was famously signing sheaves of uh, execution declarations over coffee um, and, and hundreds of thousands more were placed in like uh, sort of slave labor in re-education camps, if you will. So a lot of the infrastructure projects that were done in the forties in Spain were done by these prisoners who, um, so they were also, so they executed a bunch of people. They also did very long internments, so like 40 years in a day kind of internments. Um, and in those those prison camps, they're being worked to death. The, the very famous Valley of the Fallen Monument to the Nationalist cause is was built by slaves, many who died uh, working on it. They didn't care about safety conditions or food or things like that. Um, so a lot of the the dams, the aquifers, roads, highways were done by people who were incarcerated. Um, yeah, it was just extremely punitive. They also, you know, so if you, you start off with in sowing just total terror, um, it's, you scare everyone that way. And then you're seizing property, you're, you know, seizing uh, people's businesses, their ability to their farms, things like that. Um, you have created successfully created a, a second class group of citizens who are barely surviving. Um, there was also an insurgency guerrilla movement of the Maquis who lived in the mountains for many years. They were all hunted down by around 1950. They were all gone. Um, gone meaning they were exec- all, basically all executed. Um, and so you also have total control of media, news, education. And so you also have the, uh, the, the, the Catholic Church was extremely powerful. You know, priests were taking note of who was coming to Mass. There was no choice here. It was capitulate or die and or suffer very severe consequences that you were probably already suffering anyway. But it was um, it was really, really hard times. And there was a big, you know, famine at one point and that... Uh, what's his name out in Argentina, Peron sent a bunch of wheat from Argentina because they were, you know, like sort of fascist buddies, um, which saved Spain from starvation. But Franco was smart in that when he saw the World War II turning the way it was, when he realized who was going to win and who wasn't, he declared himself anti-communist and allied with the United States. And the United States helped support Franco for a really long time in exchange for military bases. So he had a lot of support. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was really intense. He also created a lot of national holidays. So any, any chance that the regime had to glorify themselves and vilify the losing side, they took it. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. So on the one hand, you get this continued repression, silencing of the other side and then you have the state that's uh, in in a position to construct the narrative, and, and and it's a narrative that lives on, like beyond beyond it, well beyond 1975, right? Oh yeah, uh, so well what, well beyond. How, it. <laughs> how does it how does it cast that particular past? Well, I mean, if you can imagine having total control, like the the state was able to create holidays, it it turned every holiday, every Saint Day, which is you know, there's a lot of them in Spain. There's a lot of holidays all became glorifications of the regime. 
he himself, be, you know, started naming himself like the Quileo. He's, you know, from God, you know, <laughs> it's like a really reinstating of old Spanish um, beliefs that like, you know, you wouldn't think would have gone into the 20th century, but you know, they made all school children sing, you know, face the face of the sun every morning, which is sort of like a fascist anthem. So all the school books were also all about how this war was necessary to protect Spain from red violence and red terror. And like, um, it was sort of a rewriting of that their violence was justified because there had been during the war, there had been some retaliatory violence um, by the second Republic or, you know, the left, if you will. But that was used as a justification for the violence anyway, even though that doesn't logically make sense since they started the war, but, um, it doesn't matter. They, you know, they had sex segregated schools. They, you know, did everything they could to indoctrinate the youth as well as consistently instilling like, Oh, by the way, the violence could come back if we're not if we're not in power, like you better watch out. Like it was always a sprinkling of like, isn't it great how stable everything is, but remember it could change, you know, like at any point and like, like really good sort of typical fascist. Um, Franco was really enamored with celebrating himself and, and, and his movement. So there's monuments and street names everywhere. And they also did this on every church. They would list the names of the locals in the town who died in the war fighting for the nationalist cause. Uh, these things are everywhere. When I say everywhere, I mean they are everywhere. If, you, if you're looking for it, you can find it, especially in, in rural parts of Spain. Um, the historical memory. So I wonder, of, it, it, of, go ahead. Is this almost like World War I monuments when you travel around yes. Europe that you're, you're seeing this everywhere? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's like public. All public buildings at one point, and all churches had the names of all of the people who died in those towns, alike those World War One monuments. Except they're just one side, and they're the not the democratic side. Um, it's also maybe it's more akin to World War One, World War Two monuments in Germany that do exist, but are you know they're subdued, um, but much more present. I mean, they're everywhere. The the town that I was living in at one point, even the church in the stained glass windows had the phalangist seal on it, which is, you know, the Franco's political party was in the church um, as part of their stained glass windows. And this is decades after the transition to democracy. That was 2015. <laughs> yeah, it's still there. And if you don't understand the extent and the scale uh, and the impact of the trauma, right, you can't you can't begin to grasp well, how in a democracy wasn't their reaction to that? Didn't they didn't they have means to to, to bring about change? Absolutely. When if you think about like say your family was repressed um, and harassed, seeing signs like that in the local church or on the streets, it's really threatening, and it's constant. It's everywhere street names, school names, just everything. It's a constant reminder that your life is in danger. It's very stressful. You get to 1975 and uh, there is a successor, but he's assassinated, right? And um, there's this transition, like a three-year transi- transition to democracy. And uh, once again, right, Spain is, is a, a democratic republic. 
So how does it how does it deal with that past? Um, it doesn't. <laughs> um, so if you think about, it, it had forty almost forty years the regime to instill its narrative. It's a very long time to constantly be worrying people that violence could happen after tremendous violence. You have a huge trauma um, that is compounded by more trauma and fear. And this regime is still executing people until this like the seventies, right before like seventy four, seventy three. They're still executing by garrote which is like a wire that's placed around your throat and it asphyxiates you horrifically. Um, so it's not like it's not a violent regime. It's just not as violent. And so when Franco dies, it takes a while, but the political elites decide that because they are afraid that this will lead to more violence, um, they make what's called the pact of forgetting, which is this idea that we'll just not talk about the past. Um, we're moving forward, we're moving into the future, we're leaving the past behind. That's it. Um, this also included the amnesty law of 1977, which gave blanket amnesty to both, quote unquote, both sides. Now, I said earlier that people were serving extremely long prison sentences. So at the time of the um, the transition, people were still in prison from 1939. And so part of the amnesty laws were to get those people out. Um, what it effectively did though, I mean, it did get those people out, but it also gave every person who had been in the regime or who had, um, committed human rights abuses. Cause there's also a ton of torture happening throughout the regime. They really liked torturing people. There's, um, in Puerto de Sol, there's a, a building there that on New Year's they do the grapes and stuff, but the basement of that building is where they held people and tortured them. <laughs> it's a big tourist location. <laughs> But, um, so this was, this was an ongoing thing. All those people who were torturing people, things like that were given amnesty. And effectively what they did was they just sort of took all of the structure, all of the people, the, all the institutions, and they just moved it over into the democracy. So you didn't see what, you know, like if you remember the war in Iraq, they're talking about like debathification or denazification where you'd rebuild everything. And none of that happened in Spain. They just kept everybody and they just moved them over. So the judges, the lawyers, everything from the institutions of the Franco regime came forward into the democracy. So you're not going to see a lot of sympathy for um, anything other than let's pretend like nothing's changed, except now we call it a democracy. Basically, a lot of people who are complicit in that past continue on in their jobs, whether they're Absolutely. teachers or, or judges. Uh -huh. or No accountability whatsoever. But in part of that, part of that amnesty law, part of that, uh, 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 the failure to, uh, to carry out any kind of institutional reform, it's based on what the real, the very real fear of a military coup, right? And there, there is an attempted coup. So there, there's a concern. Yeah. And there was violence in that time period. There were, um, a, a bunch of lawyers. If you go to Spain near, sort of near the Atocha transition, it's a little further up, kind of near Lava Pies. I think it's Antonio Martin is the station. There's um, a statue of men sort of huddled um, around, like with their arms around each other. And that, that's referenced to uh, a bunch of you know, pro-democracy lawyers that were assassinated in the building across the street by uh, you know, somebody who really didn't want democracy, was a fascist. Um, so you have targeted assassinations at that point. You have a lot of violence. You do have violence. And then in 1981 you have a coup attempt by a group of the Guardia Civil who come into parliament with guns. It's, I would uh, encourage people to look up those images because they are quite dramatic. 
Um, and they're, you know, put down and they go to jail. But that was seen as a big test of the democracy. It was also seen as proof, evidence to families, uh, you know, Republican families that they can't trust the democracy um, because these men also had lists of people they wanted to kill. Um, they were, you know, mostly leftists, things like that. And so it was evidence of like, see, this is why if you lift your head up, you get your head chopped off. So it was it was used as a way to really reify like silences for the best. Because the government was still on a really fragile, fragile footing, right? And, and then if you if you fast forward even into the 1990s, because you mentioned, well, things start to change, right? That there are artists and journalists, academics who start to talk about this past in the 1990s. And then I was just fascinated by the story of this particular judge. There's a judge who, um, uh, and I guess this is even pushing into the 2000s, right? Uh, who uh, takes a strong stand against this past. And is this, I mean, the reality of even decades later of in institutional continuity that he runs up against? Oh yeah. It's incredible. Um, yeah. So Baltasar Garcon really spearheaded the universal jurisdiction law. It's an international law that argues that any state can hold anybody accountable for, you know, horrific crimes such as uh, genocide, disappearances, things like that. So human rights abuses can be adjudicated by any court. So it sort of makes an international court uh, really important. And he put out an arrest warrant for Pinochet, who was the former dictator of Chile, um, who funnily enough, <laughs> also attended Franco's funeral. <laughs> it was a, a really interesting little side fact, but he was vacationing in uh, the UK. Um, Garcon put out an arrest warrant for him for crimes against humanity. And it started this massive international diplomatic crisis. The UK did not know what to do. Um, people were sort of freaking out on all sides. My father is from Chile. So this was like, you know, I, I remember this really vividly as like, oh, wow. <laughs> um, people flew out there anyway. so. He was under house arrest for like almost two years, if not, I think maybe more, um, until he pretended to have dementia as a sort of a way to get out of it. And they gave him a humanitarian release and he went home. But it caused all these conversations to happen in Spain about, well, why are we, why are we prosecuting someone else's war criminals when we have a whole bunch at home? And this person named Emilio Silva, who's a sociologist and a journalist, wrote an article that said, you know, my grandfather also was a desaparecido or a disappeared person, um, which is a, a commonly used word for disappearances from Latin America during the regimes there. It's a little different. Um, I just want to say that's a little different than what happened in Spain in that people knew what happened to them and, and more or less kind of where they were, whereas in, in Latin America, they literally just went, poof, nobody knew where it happened to them. But um, I mean, not poof, they were killed. <laughs> But he writes this article, he puts his name and address on the bottom, and he gets a call from a forensic anthropologist who said, I think I can help you find your grandfather. And that's what starts this whole new historical memory movement. But up until that point, yeah, no one's really, no one's really talking about the past, or if they are, it's, it's still kind of tentative, maybe it's an artwork, um, media, but it's, it's pretty quiet. You know, and I just want to say that the thing in like transition democratic transition theories at that time hold up Spain as the way to do this. This was seen, the pacted negotiated transition was seen as the most successful uh, way to do that. And that, that holds until the early to mid eighties where you have Argentina transitioning. 
Um, but even there, they go back to amnesty and, and sort of silencing. Chile transitioned the same exact way that Spain did. And that doesn't really change until you start seeing truth and reconciliation in South Africa. So things change a lot in the evolution of how we understand what's the best course of action for countries that are transitioning into democracy after authoritarianism. Um, but yeah, Spain, and I, I would like to say also that, yeah, these are really, really intense times. Everything is so raw. People are on edge looking for stability. It is a very difficult time. Um, and there's a lot of debate about whether or not political stability can be maintained if you are holding people accountable immediately. And for decades, there, there's been the government what indoctrinating people that uh, you know be careful, be, yeah, be careful yeah. what what kind of changes here, what you what you look into. Absolutely. Uh, but you mentioned there, there's a there is a there is this historical memory law, right? In 2007, mm-hmm. I mean, was that intended to go farther than it did? It seems like a, a measure that just ends up falling pretty falling short. short. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean. The reason that, that that got there is that Emilio Silva, um, with the help of some forensic professionals, were able to find his grandfather and the 12 other people he was killed and buried with. And then he's identified with DNA testing um, later that year. And it just explodes in Spain. You know, all of a sudden, families from different Republicans are like, well, I want that. <laughs> you know, if you can think of if, if over 114 to 140,000 people were in mass graves. That's a lot of families who are looking for loved ones. And so then this movement happens and Emilia Silva and Matias, um, Santiago Matias or, or, or Macias, excuse me, start this association for the recovery of historical memory. It explodes across Spain. Um, and it, it's really expensive to do this, to be trying to exhume. There's also other groups, there's forum for memory. There's all these different groups that are trying to start this exhumation process. Um, and they're also calling for, um, memories. So the association in the early years would go on, uh, radio stations, TV shows, and ask for the older generations to send them their memories of the war, of the violence of people they knew were killed, um, where they thought they were killed. Um, when I was volunteering with the association, that was one of my jobs actually was to go through letters that handwritten letters that were sent to the association to pull out information of possible graves and victims. And we're talking thousands. I mean, people sent thousands. They're like, I heard this on the news program. And so you have this opening up of memory, not just of graves at this time, which I think is really important is like the feeling of safety and security is, is still not entirely there, but there's an invitation for people to walk through a door. Um, and, and but it's that initial, it's Emilio, it's Emilio Silva, right? The, that initial ex, exhumation, right? That uh, yeah. opens a floodgate of memories, a demand from from the thousands of other families who've lost loved ones to yeah. to to be able to do the same to find them, right? Yeah, yeah, and it was it's a truly tremendous thing. Um, in some ways, he sort of stumbled into. I don't know if that was what he thought would happen when he wrote that article. Um, and we've got to remember, like, DNA testing as an option, well, DNA testing in its existence is still relatively new. It wasn't really around until 1989. Um, and it's not, it's expensive, it's hard to get. And so, like, this was, two, this is the year 2000. It's still kind of like a, wow, what do you mean you can identify bones and stuff like that? So it was, it was very 
it was very cool and people really wanted it. And there was a deep need there for, it's been a long time. Just to go backwards a little bit. So there's a, there's this, uh, first, uh, uh, exhumation, uh, that happens. Uh, but there's also a prehistory, right. And that, uh, that this whole forensic, uh, human rights movement really goes back to the 1980s, right. In, 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 in Argentina, it lays the groundwork, uh, for, uh, for, for, for what happens in Spain. And then there's collaboration that you talk about, uh, um, in, in the last chapter, um, so how does this how, how does Ar- Argentina play this play this leading role uh, in this uh, global forensic human rights movement? How does this how does this evolve and develop? It's one of my favorite aspects of this story because, like, I like to think of it as sort of you have two timelines, right? You have Spain; they have their war, you know, they have their their scientists and all that, the, the dictatorship, and simultaneously you have Argentina that's existing. You know, Perón is friends with Franco; they're sending you know when. Perón gets exiled. He goes to Spain. He's there for a really long time. He comes back to Argentina, re-wins election, almost immediately dies. And his wife takes over. This is around the same time that you have uh, a rise in revolutionary leftist movements, especially in the global South. Um, And so there's this tension, again, that we saw in the 30s is repeating in the 70s, um, 60s, 70s of, you know, wanting change social change and the pushback of the old guard. They use extremely similar logic in the dictatorship in Argentina, which was a military hunter, this idea that Marxism can be rooted out through family systems. And so you see the stealing of children who were born in captivity or taken uh, at nonverbal ages and then illegally adopted out to families in that like they were being presented as their own biological children. Their origins were completely disappeared, if you will. Their parents are killed. You know, 3,000 people, 30,000 people, excuse me, um, are disappeared through clandestine prisons and killed. It's, again, extremely repressive and violent, except it's not visible there. It's like people are just going missing. And then, you know, the regime sort of starts to cannibalize itself. It gets into this stupid fight with the UK over the Falkland Islands. Maybe Argentinians would be mad at me for saying that, but um, it starts this war that they lose. And, and because of that, they also lose a lot of um, power. But at the same time, there's families who are like, where are my children? Where are my grandchildren? And there's no way at this point to, to use any kind of science to be like, that child belongs to this family or not. But these women, the grandmothers and the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, really built uh, relationships with foreign scientists to help them because they knew um, that one day the regime would fall and science might be the answer. And that's exactly what happened. Um, the regime transitioned in 83. And they invited the transitional government invited different experts to come and help them. And one of them was uh, Dr. Clyde Snow, who was an American forensic anthropologist who's really famous at that time for having identified the skull of uh, Mendela, the Mengele, the uh, Auschwitz doctor. So he's, he's sort of already well known, he goes to Argentina, he gives a presentation to a group of family members um, and transition officials about the power of forensic anthropology. This man comes up to him and says, is it possible for a baby to dissolve? And he's like, what? (laughs) And he's like, well, my family, my daughter and her family were killed in a shootout with the police. But the, the, the morgue worker told us that the, the baby was so tender that she just dissolved like water 
is that possible? And Dr. Kleitzno asks if he can do an exhumation of the family and he's granted this permission. And what he finds is that that official story of a shootout was a complete lie. The family had been executed within 30 centimeters and that the remains in the baby's casket belonged to an adult foot that had decomposed somewhere else, which suggested that the baby lived and was somewhere not near the family. There was another exhumation that they did um, of Estela de Carlado, who's the current president of the grandmothers of the Plaza de Mayo's daughter. She was lucky in that she got her daughter's body back. Um, but she, um, so if you give live birth, um, it's, it scars the pelvic bones in a particular way. So her remains had this pelvic scarring. And so Clyde Snow said, you're a grandmother. But again, there was no baby. There was no fetal remains. There was nothing. So there's all this evidence that starts building up that there are missing children. Um, and so you start to see people going, wait a minute, <laughs> how do we, ha we have all this evidence. And by the way, all this evidence completely contradicts what the state is saying has happened. And so this evidence was used in the trial against the generals. Um, they were convicted, but the military was very upset by being held accountable. They threatened again to have another coup. So the next president, Menhem, gave everybody blanket amnesty. Along the same time, there are genetic scientists who are working on blood testing, which at that time was not quite DNA yet, but it was able to do sort of like basic paternity, basic relation, like allele um, testing. And so they were starting to use that. You're getting a lot of testimonies from people who, were, who survived the clandestine prisons or who are neighbors of a former military person who just showed up with a baby one day, who are giving this information to the grandmothers. Uh, Paula, I'm blanking on her last name, was the first child to be identified in 1989. Um, and the family had claimed she was theirs biologically until blood testing proved that she did not belong to them at all, that she belonged to a couple, uh, a, a two disappeared people, and that she biologically was related to one of the grandmothers. This then turned into like adoption law. But eventually the grandmothers won um, due to the belief that you have the right to your biological identity and that you have certain rights. All you know, children have the right to their biological identities. But that changed everything and that the state at that point had still been saying that this hadn't happened. Um, but once they had the blood testing, it really revolutionized how people thought about what happened in the violence with the mass graves as well, proof of torture you know, death flights is where they took people who were alive um, after being tortured horrifically. They drugged them and threw them out of airplanes alive. Um, there was so much evidence that was collected from the forensic investigations in Argentina that it, it just changed everything there. Um, that team then went around the global south and started teaching people how to do this on their own so that they wouldn't have to rely on sketchy governments, um, that they would be able to And that to team, have. so that's the... That's yes. the Argentine forensic anthropology team, right? That, that, yes. that really goes global. Yeah. Oh man, they they they've changed the world completely. They start this team. You know, Clyde Snow got a bunch of grad students from a university in Buenos Aires. They start this team, and then they go around. They set up one in Guatemala. They set up one in El Salvador. They set up one in Chile, Peru. Most of that part of the global south that's going on until like the 90s. And then, you know, the early 90s, you see the, the wars in the Balkans. They go and they help set up the lab in Bosnia-Herzegovina. They set up a lab in Cyprus from the war in the 70s um, and the occupation of northern Cyprus. They're just going around and doing this. And so 
again, if I bring your attention back to the timeline, like Spain is going along its transition, Argentina's blowing up, you have the rise of this sort of blood testing, Spain's in silence, you get to the 90s, you know, this movement of forensics and human rights is really expanding. It's now on the European continent with Bosnia-Herzegovina, 1998, you have Pinochet being indicted, hop to the year 2000, Emilia Silva writes this article, and it's very easy for uh, human forensics-based human rights to then intersect Spain. That was a long-winded way to answer that. <laughs> Sorry. But, I mean, Argentina has already developed this and shown what you can do, shown what you can do with yeah. forensic science to, to challenge the official narrative, to, to at least to try to begin to, to, to bring people to justice with this. Absolutely. Um, and Spain is, is different in a lot of the cases. So, like, you also have Guatemala. There's a genocide there. Um, forensic science is used to show, like, most of the victims were not, quote-unquote, you know, guerrillas deserving of death, but they're small children, they're women, they're old people. These are, you know, just a genocide of indigenous people. So like they've been showing constantly and across different cases and across different um, contexts that the science is not negotiable. Like it's very, it's brilliant in many ways to just be like, regardless of the politics, not even talking about why these people were targeted. We can say that this person died like this at this age, with these wounds, and there's no way that you can change anybody's mind because that's just what the science says. The science doesn't have an agenda. The science doesn't have politics. It just has these answers. And then what you do with that, you know, they kind of just go, and there you go, make up your own mind. And it's a really smart strategy. Hmm. So most of your book is on, it's centered on this association for the recovery of, of historical memory. I don't, do you, do you pronounce it as ARM um, it's, for uh, short? I don't. The, the ARMH, it would be like probably the English version. Um, yeah. Or the association. The association. Yeah. That's, that's so this, this plays the leading role in this, uh, in this forensic, um, uh, um, memory uh, drive within Spain, uh, and um, this is this is really the focus of most of the book. And you, you're breaking this down into uh, uh, their work on excavation sites, mm-hmm. uh, the classes they give, the, these these homage and burial ceremonies, and they're all part of this process of of trying to break the silence and and uh, reveal the truth of the past. Uh, and when you start into the excavation sites, I, I, I love the, the subtitle of that chapter, that this was a, a scientific Trojan horse, that you really, <laughs> that this, it's a way of kind of drawing people in unsuspecting and getting them to start talking about things in a, uh, in a way that they never have before, at least outside the confines of, 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 of the home. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. Can you talk a little bit about how, how does how do, how does the work of this organization um, how is it kind of like a a, a performance that that draws in the, these spectators and then makes them participants in the process? Yeah, it's um, so in sociology we talk a lot about Goffman, who was sort of dramaturgical theory. This idea that we're all sort of actors and we have um, you know front stage, backstage, that we're all performing. Um, it's you know the association goes into these towns. And there, there is a lot of performance they have on their costumes. They have their, you know, their official gear that's got their name on it. 
So they have all their tools and technical stuff. Um, so they have all their, you know, quote, unquote props. And they, they go in and they start, um, you know, doing technical work. The thing about the violence is that a lot of people in these small towns know exactly where these graves allegedly are through legend, through storytelling. And so if they see people with excavators and, you know, they're in neon vests or they have the association, the ARMH on their backs, um, they know kind of what's going on and they're curious. And I think the thing that's, that's interesting about this performance is that curiosity tends to overpower ideology in many ways. People just want to know. Um, especially in small, like rural towns as well. There's not a lot going on. So something new and interest, like something new at all is intriguing and people will come and they'll ask questions like, what are you doing? Or, oh my gosh, are you, are you looking for so-and-so, you know, the person who would maybe be in the grave. And that's such an easy way to start a conversation. They also put up sometimes their sign on the road so that people will know immediately what they're doing and then have questions or if they come and look at it, they'll send someone to go, hi, how are you? Um, you know, what do you know? Like, do you live around here? It's, it's such a, an easy entry point. And then people want to help usually even, I mean, there's so many times where I heard people say, well, I don't believe in this, but here's what I've been told. This is where I think the grave is like, blah, blah, blah. And then we'll wish you luck. So it's it's interesting. And they usually come back too, because people, again, want to know what you're doing, how far you got, especially if there's remains that have been found. People want to see them. And that's how you can get them to take one of those classes at the foot of the grave where they're explaining. Again, they start science first through the crash course of like what they're doing technically. And then they lead into a, a more politically charged conversation about whether this violence was justified, does the state have a responsibility to the victims? And what about all the people's bodies who are still littering the countryside? Um, and in that way, it, it's, it's sneaky, <laughs> but it's really clever. And it does encourage just storytelling and testimony giving about what these people know, how they feel about it. It's really, they also encourage a lot of the elders. But they benefit, right? They benefit from yeah. popular culture, right? As Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, people love CSI. Um, they love bones, things like that. And so they benefit from this previous knowledge of what they think forensic science is. Um, and I would like to go on the record and say most of those shows are pretty inaccurate, um, if not entirely inaccurate, but they it's good for the movement because people believe it, um, at, or at least feel familiar enough. Also, DNA testing is one of the most believed sciences out there. Um, and most people know what it is. And that's, I think, really beneficial. You already have knowledge coming into something like this. You're not having to explain quantum physics to get people to buy in. They already know. They've seen it on TV. And they're excited to be near it. So you've got people's natural curiosity. You have uh, how this whole uh, process is staged, uh, the benefit of popular culture that, that, that draws people in. Uh, and then once they get there, it seems to be that there's almost like a spontaneous storytelling that begins, right? That, that's mm -hmm. that, uh, mm -hmm. um, where the, where the, the spectators become part of, become part of the performance, right? And, uh, um, what kind of stories do they open up with? 
Um, it depends. So a lot of times it's like, oh, well, I heard this when I was growing up, like, oh, wasn't that terrible? Uh, sometimes you hear like, you know, it was so bad. It, usually it's stories of suffering. Um, sometimes if there's victims, families nearby, or even if it's not victims, families that are in the grave, but just people who suffered repression, they'll tell stories of what they heard. Um, there was one uh, where a man came and he just talked about what happened to his mom, to his grandmother, um, to this this priest that used that um, position of power to be extremely abusive, you know, things like that. So it would be like, let me tell you about my family that were killed and thrown in a well. Let me tell you about how my mom, this was very rare. People really didn't like talking about what happened to women, but sometimes people would talk about like, and he was actually quite rare, actually owning that he, he was related to a woman whose hair had been cut and was forced to drink castor oil and walk naked through the streets. Most of the time when people were talking about gendered sexual violence, it was in like a, well, you know what happens to women and it was really bad. But a lot of times it would, it would skirt those issues and come back to like the men were killed. The property was seized. They threw them over this, you know, part of the freeway. Um, it would always come back to like, how can I help you guys find a grave or, you know, what else do you want to know kind of thing. So you get a lot of like, this is what I heard growing up, or this is what was experienced in my family. Um, and then sometimes it would turn into conversations about like the silence. I, that happened a lot where people would say, it's amazing that this is happening, that we can even have this conversation is such a sign of progress that I, I heard that conversation a lot. Yeah. That's something I was hoping you could elaborate a little, uh, a little bit on because you could, you could see people arguing, well, you know, wouldn't these story stories that people are opening up about, aren't they just reliving these really painful experiences? And uh, it's just perpetuating the suffering. And that, uh, you know, how is this something beneficial to, to, to encourage these people to come to the site, to encourage these conversations to happen? How is this a helpful process uh, for, for, the, for the community, for the country? Yeah, and I think that's definitely a critique that's lobbed against the historical memory movement a lot. Um, I think they would counter with it. You need to be able to process and talk about things. Um, I would say for the families, it's in some ways. So listen, like the state never did any kind of truth and reconciliation. There was never any attempt at any kind of memory work on this on the part of the state. So in some ways, these are are sort of fill in, they're not the best villains, but sort of a version of a truth and reconciliation, or at least a truth commission where people in the community are finally listening to people talk about the stories of the past. The other thing is, is that all the perpetrators are dead. This is just literal witnessing and listening. And I would say that that's actually really important for people who come from families that had repressed you know, that, that were victims of repression because they're finally sort of forcing people to listen to them just to even acknowledge that this happened to them, I think is a huge win. Um, and also like a lot of times people would bring younger, like teenagers or kids, and they might be the first time that they're hearing these stories. Um, and that I think is important for the younger generations to not be completely ignorant to the, the history of their own countries. But like, the the witnessing, the testimony giving, no one seemed so overwhelmed that they were being traumatized. It was just more of a like, we finally have the capacity and ability to talk about this in public. And I think for also the 
the victim side, like the Republican side, seeing that no one is getting arrested or dying after telling these stories that it's safe is also incredibly important. I would say that's actually important for everyone to see that you can talk about these things without the violence coming back means you can trust your democracy. You can somewhat trust your neighbors not to kill you, you know, and that, that goes against everything that they were taught for 40 years more at the transition, right? Is if you talk about this, bad things will happen. And now they're talking about it and nothing happened. It's, it's, I think it's incredibly empowering. And you mentioned too the truth telling. It's just it's an important part of this reconciliation process, right? That uh, if the state isn't doing it, that this is a part of the process of 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 people doing this at the local level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean the thing is, is like, and I've said this before other places, but state terror leaves a mark, and it lasts a really long time, and it's going to last even longer if you tell people they can't talk about it. Um, it's it's intergenerational and pretending like it didn't happen doesn't mean it didn't happen. Um, and so giving people the opportunity to share and commune with their neighbors about shared tragedies um, or tragedies that were forced in behind closed doors out of fear is really reparative. Um, and it's also, I would argue, like, how can you have a democracy if you're forcing people into silence about the past? Um you know, wounds have to breathe to heal. Um, the, some of this violence is almost 100 years old, and it's still this painful. So the the old way didn't work. But to to go back to the the point, so you have a class, you have a chapter on classes, right? And you could argue that these classes are also another stealth approach to getting people to feel comfortable about oh, talking about the past. Definitely. Yes, yeah, the the classes are really interesting. Um, so they invite people from the local town to come and learn about what they're doing. It's always presented as a, of like a science and history class. It's never presented as anything political. Um, they start with, you know, explaining the science that they're using protocols based from the United Nations. They, they're showing the tools. They're explaining exactly what the people, uh, the workers are doing in the grave, you know, and, and people are standing around an open pit and looking at skeletons. And then they move into like what the history was of the people. And this is when you also see locals jumping in, filling in details. So there, you know, there's already this sort of uh, co-collaborative experience. They're asking questions. And then it turns into like, let's look at signs of violence. So this person, you know, for example, you know, sometimes the thing about, so the thing about a mass grave is if, unless it's been disturbed, it looks exactly how it was left. So it's very clear you don't have to do a lot of talking because the skeletons, as I argue in my book, are doing the talking. You can see bullet holes. You can see broken bones. You can see um, personal items, things like that. You can see bullets. So it's very visceral. You don't have to do a lot of work here. Um, but, you know, usually the lead uh, archaeologist will be like, you know, here we have uh, signs of torture or this person has an entry wound from a bullet here. This is what we know with how old they were what the story was, you know, in the case of um, the one I start my book off with was a, a family of four uh, with one woman uh, who was eight months pregnant. And then, you know, she had one little red earring resting on her cranium and like a hair comb. And it's like, you can really tell a lot about this person just based on, on that information. And then being like, was she a threat to the state? Like, did she need to die like this? Did she need to stay alongside a road? 
for this many years would, you know, like, especially they also then start pulling from like families have the right to bury their loved ones um, based in accordance to their values uh, and not by the will of the people who murdered their loved ones. And so there's a lot of like very subtly throwing in and then they sort of grow that critique of the state of like, whenever we never talked about this, the state does not pay for this. There's no DNA base, but you know, there's lots of pointing out just sort of the failures of the Spanish state to do anything for the victims, you know, and that the, the association covers the costs. They cover the costs of funerals that they do all this so that families can get their loved ones back. And it's a, it's sort of a one, two punch because you're hearing this critique of the state while also looking at a really visceral image that you could almost reach out and touch of people who died horrifically, you know, it's, and, and you can see so much, you can see their shoes, how they lived, maybe the type of fashion someone was interested in. And then you can imagine their very last moments of life while someone is narrating to you that the state has failed, not only them, but everyone standing around there. It's extremely powerful. And it's not, it doesn't come off as extremely political to say that families have the right to bury their loved ones doesn't come off like a political statement. And so there it's, it's really, it's really intense and it's really beautifully done often. And I've seen some really interesting things come out of those classes, especially in the, the key. And then at the end, right there, the conversations, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, It ends with a conversation. That part I thought was striking, right? That if you, if you want to talk about, well, what are the benefits of going through this, of getting people to talk? I mean, you really see some concrete um, things that come out of these conversations. Yeah, I mean, so they they do a they do a Q and A thing afterwards. Like, does anybody have any questions? And that's usually where you see exactly what you were saying. These like amazing moments of either clarity or truth. Um, there was one where a judge was like, "Well, I still don't think you know the state should have to pay for this." And then there was a whole conversation amongst the people there with a uh, a pretty important, powerful person of the state, a judge going back and forth over what the memory law did, didn't do, what the rights of families are, what the rights, you know, and obligations of the state are like just true, what felt like true, like democratic Habermasian, if you will, ideas of how do we self-govern? What do we want from our government? What do we want from each other? And that was really interesting to watch. Another one uh, was in a small, very small village where a local uh, the family members of the of the of the deceased were there as well, um, where someone said, "I want to say I'm sorry for what was done to your family. We, you know, we are the children of the perpetrators, if you will, and you know, we were told that these were bad people who deserved death, and like it's been made very clear that that wasn't the case, and we want to apologize." And you know, everyone was crying, and they they came over and they hugged each other, and it was. It was one of the most incredibly powerful examples of what justice can look like outside of how we traditionally think of justice. This was such a moment of of truth and reconciliation at its core. And I think what made it so also intense and real was that it happened over the bodies. They were literally out um, and you could see them and they were there. It just it really felt um, like everyone was present the past, the present, the future, uh, for the state of the country and its ability to heal these really old and 
open wounds. And so these, these moments, these conversations are just so important. So when you, when you turn to the, um, the burial ceremonies, the, the homage uh, rituals, there, I think that the emphasis seems to be on how this gets amplified by press coverage, right? Yeah. That, uh, that the press is, is uh, announcing what's going to happen. They're covering the event after mm-hmm. it's happened. And uh, it's almost like they're picking up the script of this organization and even taking it beyond anything, yeah. anything the, what this association could have hoped for. How, how, does, that, how does that work? Oh, it's, it's so in these local towns, like it, when they recover a body and then the family decides to do like an homage and reburial event, sometimes local newspapers will cover it. And that really, you're right, it amplifies the messaging um, because the association will put out a press release to the local press about these events. Uh, A press person will come and take pictures, talk to people. Um, Sometimes these events are quite large um, and, and heavily covered. You know, and again, like a lot of times these these acts of violence that happened are well known. And so people know these stories. And so to have like a, a final chapter, if you will, about how it ends is, is very, uh, I think, enticing for local <laughs> newspapers. And, but what they do, what's interesting. And what I talk about in my book is the, the choice words, like you could say, like in the past, it would have been like, Oh, they're executed, which would suggest that they were gone through a, a like a judicial um, process. Then they were, found guilty and then executed by the state versus using words like assassinated or murdered or um, killed by the state suggests that the state was maybe not necessarily working within the confines of law. Um, And that I think that's also really important. It's how do we frame, how do we understand, how is the news discussing what we are hearing about? So if you're using passive voice, like uh, someone was involved in an officer related shooting, like what happened? Who shot who? There's no, you know, like someone was shot, but who shot them is lost in passive voice. And in, in Spanish, it was also like, if you're using the word assassinated versus executed, you're making a distinction between whether this was legally, a legally sanctioned killing or not. And that I think is really important. It's subtle, but it's also reframing an old narrative, right? It's recasting the victims as victims and not criminals who deserve to be killed by the state. And I think that's really important. And you're you're identifying a perpetrator, right? Exactly. And the perpetrator being the state that was out of control. Um, And you're also putting pictures of the victim in there. You know, a lot of these, uh, you know, pictures of the victims that are, you know, smiling and and they look sweet or or, the, the family members, like if it's, especially if it's the the living child, so they're old, um, they look, so happy and sad, but like, you're like, Oh my gosh, this poor woman, she's 92. All she wants was her dad back. That's very compelling. Um, and it, it puts a sympathetic face on the whole story, right? Like there were people who paid terrible prices. They lost their parents at a young age, um, to this tremendous violence. And now they finally got them back. And I think that that part of the story is also really compelling and really part of this. That's justice. They, are getting their story told at a higher level. And it's, you know, cause I do think it's important these sort of micro interactions of storytelling, but having news coverage <laughs> helps it get to that next sort of meso societal level of like, Oh, wow. Did you read about this? That's so interesting. Like, of course she should have her dad back. Like all families have the right to bury their loved ones. It's almost a cultural universal belief. So I think that that helps this movement really make a lot of headway. 
Because again, you're not talking about the politics of what happened. You're just talking about the basic needs of families to be able to move on. And you mentioned as well, with these um, homage ceremonies, uh, reburials, they're a form of reparative justice in that these people who have been disappeared, right, are, are reincorporated back into their, their names are, are are mentioned again that they're reincorporated back into the community, back into the nation. Um, Absolutely. So they're made visible. Absolutely. I mean, these people were rendered invisible by the state. They were wiped off the face of the earth and then forcibly forgotten. So to recover them, say their names out loud, reconnect the skeleton to their identity, publicly own them, and say this is our not just our father or our friend, this is our neighbor, this is our like a, a fellow Spanish citizen who's now going to be incorporated as part of the citizen dead is extremely important. It is a form of justice, um, considering that the whole point of their death was to erase them <laughs> from existing at all in any way. And that's the, that's the necro power that you talk about, that the power that the state wields is not just to crush the the uh, the enemy but to to and and to silence them but to completely erase them exactly and so this is a true um triumph i think of the movement um for these families especially and for their communities to say you don't have the right to do that to anyone you know this is a basic human right to exist to be remembered um and you know to be cared for in life and in death and the state doesn't have the right to just make someone disappear. And what was, what was amazing was in this one case of this mother of Vincenta mm -hmm. and her daughter and her son, Jesus was that you get the involvement of the local mayor, uh, the local, what the town council. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and this is, these are conservatives, right? Yeah. This is, these are people who are a part of the, 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 the ruling party at the time that uh, really was reluctant to offer any support for, for, for these kinds of initiatives. Yeah, I would say obstinate. <laughs> they were really anti-helping at all. So yeah, you have this really um, strange bedfellows, if you will. But I think what really resonated with that mayor was the, un the injustice of these people's deaths. And that like, that they, it was I think it was unconscionable to him that these people were just in an unmarked grave um, buried without any kind of marker and that the family wanted them back. I think he just, it was in his power to make this happen. And, you know, he held a, a moment of silence at their homage. And, and like, I remember people just around me being like, what is happening? Because he was so respectful and he made everyone else go with him in this moment of silence. And people around me were joking, like, oh, he's definitely not going to win his re-election. He did. I think he's still mayor. Um, but it was, uh, it was stunning to everyone around me to see anybody in the opposition party being that respectful to, quote-unquote, red uh, murder victims. And you mentioned what this is maybe as close as you're going to get to an official apology, right? at least at that point in time. Absolutely. Yeah. From the state or any kind of local like official capacity from a Spanish government. Um, you know, things are changing there. I do believe they just passed a new uh, democratic memory law. I am not as well versed, but it does seem like they're making very substantial changes um, to these memory laws and attempts to, to be more reparative and, and to sort of chip away at the amnesty law. Again, I'm not quite um, as 
uh, comfortable speaking on that other than I think they've made a huge amount of progress recently. Um, but I don't think you get there without all these other steps in between, you know, where you don't, you have, I was so surprised by how little, there was so little news coverage of that, uh, this sweeping uh, change. I mean, it, it, there were articles that I saw. I mean, it, this is just happening like yeah, last week. I, yeah, exactly. Like it's not week. clear if this was, it's not clear if this was, has even been enacted. I read that, uh, that it was pa- passed by a lower house and that, uh, it, it, it could be enacted this, this week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's still ongoing, but the, the fact that that's even happening is, it's incredible. The same thing with Franco being exhumed and reburied in a private ceremony. People thought that all hell was going to break loose and nothing happened. <laughs> you know, like I think there's the, the fear is what I hope is happening is that people are realizing that these fears that have been embedded in their psyche across the transition and the regime are not founded in reality, that the democracy is stronger than people believe it to be. And I think part of that, the stepping stone approach here is like you've had the association amongst other movements doing these reburial and homage ceremonies, the, the micro interactional work with people in local towns and just building a very strong foundation of we have to talk about this. The families have rights you know, everyone has the right to recover their loved ones. Everyone has the right to science to find them. And the state does not have the right to disappear people forever or at all. But you wonder how much of a consensus there is, at least in the political realm. Is this just a socialist government? Right. <laughs> that's, yeah. Uh, and this is allied with regional story. governments, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the problem here also is that Spain, you know, like the historical memory law passed in 2007, 2008. And so then that law offered money to um, organizations like the association to do exhumations, things like that was supposed to remove all these uh, fascist symbolism across the country. 2008, you have the housing crisis that just blows up the economy. And all of a sudden, you have just so much economic hardship and pain in Spain, particularly that like it kind of forces the conversation away from memory politics and into surviving. And I I think, you know, every time you sort of step forward, 2019 is when Franco was exhumed. Uh, He was exhumed in October, 2019. I think, you know, what comes next it's COVID (laughs) and it sort of like derails uh, different memory politics and their attempts to move forward. Um, but all the whole time, things like the association, they're still doing their thing. They're still exhuming. They're still working uh, underneath that fray. But big changes like this always seem to get upset by either economic or public health crises that derail the focus and the need into something much more immediate. Your final chapter, you're really getting at what's unique about this, is that this is not just a Spanish memory movement, that it, that that this is international and that there are a lot of things that, that happened that would never have happened if not for the international dimension of it. And, and, and you, this, this particular Spanish judge uh, is part of the story that there's, there's a Spanish initiative to look into this past in, in 2008 that seems to go nowhere. Right. And, and if change happens, it comes, it comes from Argentina. Again, Argentina comes back. <laughs> Um, so this case that you're talking about um, is, a, so we see universal jurisdiction and Argentina make a re, reappearance, a very important one, um, where a judge in Argentina takes on 
um, opening a case into the Franco era uh, crimes, including baby stealing, but also um, this woman, Ascension Mendieta Alcala, who really wanted to find her dad before he died. She knew where he was. He was executed in that 1939 massive purge. Her dad was the president of a local union. He was executed with like 44 other people the same day. These plots line what would have been the civil cemetery uh, at that time in Guadalajara, Spain. And uh, the reason they got there is because other courts in the EU and in Spain had denied uh, petitions for inquiry based on, you know, like, oh, it's been too long or, you know, in Spain because of the amnesty law. They found this sympathetic court in Argentina and Argentina is really open to universal jurisdiction because of their past. They've also done a lot of ratification of international treaties and laws that make them uh, able to uh, do this type of law, international law. And Maria Servini, uh, the Cubria is the judge. And long story short, she mandated an exhumation order for um, Timoteo, uh, the father of Ascension. And uh, that first exhumation happened in 2016. They opened up plot two in the, the cemetery there. They exhumed about 25 people. Um, and then they did DNA analysis and he wasn't in there. So they were able to get a second mandated order to open up plot one. Uh, and he was found in there. But this is truly incredible because Spain did not have to comply. I mean, that's the thing about international law is they can go, no, I'm not going to do that. That happens all the time with extradition orders or things like that. And, and there are extradition orders from this same judge that Spain has completely ignored. But for whatever reason, they were able to convince the local magistrate to allow these exhumations. There were definitely a lot of hiccups here and there. At one point, they uh, wanted to... So after all these bodies were um, analyzed, you know, there's family members who are also, you know, outside of Ascension, but other families, you know, who are of the other victims waiting for these bones so they can rebury them and the local city government uh asked demanded that the association rebury anyone that wasn't timoteo because they were like the order only was for him and they got so much bad press that they i mean because basically what they were asking the association to do was to recreate the mass grave as opposed to like the bodies are put already back. out. <laughs> just yeah, put them back. Them, put them back. We didn't find the right person. We didn't find the right person. So all these people have to go back to their mass grave. Like back you go into the ground. Um, even though we know who you are and your families are asking for, uh, you know, the remains to be returned. You don't get them back because the order was only for one person. It's extremely punitive. Um, and I think a really a good reflection of how that status quo of uh, losers and winners maintains this was 2017 when this was going on. So not that and long ago. And you mentioned ago. The, the same, the same conservative government uh, had spent money on repatriating bodies uh, of, of, of soldiers from, a, from the Blue Division, right? Yes, that were fighting alongside Hitler against the Allied forces. They had paid for those bodies to be exhumed in a foreign country and repatriated. But this, which they paid no money for, um, they were also demanding money for like just to, just that the team was there in a public space. They wanted money for it. They eventually, due to these sort of bad uh, actions, were hacked by the hacktivist organization Anonymous until they they dropped it. <laughs> but so there, there's a lot of transnational advocacy networks going on at play um, in this last chapter. Uh, uh, this conversation about Ascension and these these exhumations. 
Um, and the association has continued to exhume. So there's at least 16 plots that hold somewhere between 24 to 30 people along this wall. They've, I think, opened up six of the plots. The last, the only, the, the first two were mandated by the judge, but because they were able to get so much momentum and positive press and response, they were able to maintain opening up these graves without the intervention of a foreign government. And I mean, that's a couple of hundred people who are now returned to their families that would not have been otherwise. Ascension did get her dad back as she reburied him before she died, her, before she passed in 2019. Um, and that was her main, that was what she wanted more than anything was to get her dad, to get her dad back and rebury him before she herself passed. And you mentioned, well, the, this, this um, universal jurisdiction, really, it sets a powerful precedent for how other countries can initiate kind of a judicial process against oh, yeah. against other countries. Even individuals can do this, right? I think uh, last week it was Sweden who used universal jurisdiction to try and convict um, so, uh, a former Iranian uh, official for a massacre that happened in Iran in the 80s of like 2,000, 3,000 people. You see this in German courts um, adjudicating ISIS, former ISIS combatants that happened last year. I mean, so universal jurisdiction is expanding. It's, uh, there was one, um, I think it was in Germany, from somebody who was a Syrian official who was responsible for running a torture center for the Assad regime was convicted of crimes against humanity. So it's expanding. Um, it's definitely, I mean, just check the news that every, it seems like every week or every month, there's a new case of universal jurisdiction uh, more present maybe is the, the war in the Ukraine. Different countries are wanting to use universal jurisdiction to hold Russia accountable for war crimes. So this is a, a, an increasingly used and popular tool to hold, um, individuals, state individuals and officials accountable for um, their behaviors and actions outside of their home countries where you would normally be held accountable. This is a way of holding people accountable outside of what they how, of where they would normally be facing justice. And the important thing here is there's no statute of limitations, right? If this is deemed a crime against humanity, right? So if, if you're collecting evidence in the Ukraine now, well, it could take time, but, um, yeah, I mean, what's fascinating about Ukraine is they, I mean, what's interesting coming from a sort of a forensics perspective, is just how quickly they've gone in there. Like the other day I was watching the news and there was a story of a, a residential building being bombed and that the first thing you see image wise is forensic workers recovering bodies and remains for, um, legal, like legal and, and also identification purposes, but also that they're collecting evidence or they are already planning their evidence to be, you know, used in crimes against humanity. I think the other thing about this, these, uh, this use of universal jurisdiction is really reinforcing the idea that there is no statute of limitations for crimes against humanity, that you can always be held accountable. You are always responsible for your actions, no matter how much time has passed. And whether even regardless, if your country has amnesty, another country does not have to respect that. They can hold you accountable, period. The international forensic human rights movement has made significant contributions to ending the silence about the crimes committed during the Civil War and Franco era in Spain. The bones of Franco's victims are now being returned to their families 
for long-denied, proper, and dignified burials. Communities stigmatized for decades for their support for the Republican side are now telling their stories without shame or fear. The names of disappeared persons are once again being pronounced and reintegrated into the national community. Forensic science has contributed to a dramatic transformation of Spain's memoryscape. After decades of democratic rule, the Spanish government is finally enacting far-reaching measures to distance itself from Franco's dictatorship and to open a long-overdue national conversation about Spain's traumatic past. I would like to thank Nicole for generously sharing her time and thoughts with me. For more on this topic, visit the Realms of Memory website at realmsofmemory.com, where I devote a page to each episode. Next month, we'll turn to the topic of the memory of the genocide in Rwanda. We'll hear from Boston University professor Tim Longman about his book, Memory and Justice in Post-Genocide Rwanda. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and review us on your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Rick Dadarian. Thank you for listening to Realms of Memory.